0: Welcome back to the OWASP PDX Podcast. Today, we're talking with none other than Mark Kerfee, the founder of OWASP. Mark is also founder and CEO of SourceClear, and as we just learned this week, co-founder of his new venture, OpenRaven. Mark moved to the U.S. in 2000 to join Internet Security Systems, now a part of IBM, and later held roles including Director of Application Security at Charles Schwab, VP of Professional Services at Foundstone, now acquired by McAfee and led the security tools team at Microsoft. Mark holds a Master's of Information Security at Royal Holloway University. He's an avid cyclist and currently resides with his family in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mark Murphy, thank you for stopping by today. Thanks for having me. You founded OWASP back in 2001. Uh, you're the founder and CEO of SourceClear, now acquired by Vericode, and co-founder of the just publicly announced startup OpenRaven. What is OpenRaven?
1: Uh, we are tackling the problem of data breaches, um, and the first part of that is that we've built an open core product that essentially goes out and finds where data stores are, either in the cloud or on the corporate network and around your perimeter. Um, so that once you know where your data is, then you can figure out how to catalog that data, and uh, you know then figure out how to protect it. So the first part of that was announced this morning. Congratulations on that! Thanks. It's been uh, been a, we've all been working on it for. Uh, about nine months now and including up until about three o'clock last night. So uh, I'm slightly <laughs> tired.
0: My apologies. <laughs> I, I feel happy though, We're at least on the same day talking about it. And actually I do have some questions later on regarding data and particularly on the uh, legislative side that uh, I, I want to get some of your, your input for that as well. Yeah,
1: by all means. I mean, look, it's, it's kind of ironic that uh, we launched that company with an open core model and OWASP
0: was really my kind of first open source project. So uh, the irony of that is not lost on me. So, how did you get into security in the first place and in your case before OWASP? Yeah,
1: sure. So I had somewhat of a misspent youth, left Left school without any major sort of equivalent of high school qualifications and spent a number of years just kind of, you know, doing doing bad things essentially or, or not productive things. Um, and then, you know, decided to go back to university and sort of was, was pretty sort of strong-willed um, you know, early 20s. And rather than kind of go figure out how to do the easiest thing, I said, great, I'm going to go back and do engineering. So I, I first of all had to go do a, a primer year, then did the three years of a mechanical engineering degree. When I was there, I was doing computational fluid dynamics, so modeling fluid flow, and um, mm. was kind of into Formula One cars. And the software at the time had a hardware dongle. Um, it cost £3,000, so $5,000 or so. Um, and as an impoverished student, you know, no one had access to this and couldn't use it. So I became intrigued and essentially one weekend figured out how to reverse engineer the, the hardware dongle. And this kind of thing ignited off for me about, you know, security is like, how do they think they were protecting that? You could basically just, you know, jumper it and never make the call. So you know, spent some time um, on the internet and was was very lucky to come across a place called Royal Holloway. Um, if you've um, read the Da Vinci Code, it was where the French cryptographer Sophie Naveau was um, was set. And Royal Holloway really, um, in the late 90s, was the crypto institute in, in Europe, um, run by a guy called Fred Piper. Fred had been involved in sort of the crypto of GSM networks and various other things. He's a, a very renowned academic. And I managed to Kind of blagged my way onto that course. It was a top university in the UK, and really, I'd kind of graduated with a not a not an amazing from not an amazing university for my mechanical engineering degree. Um, so long and short of it is, you know, managed to get my masters there, um, and then went out, spent six years working in the city of London for various investment banks, so Dresner and Justin Kleinwort Benson and ING and and various things, um, and then sort of through a through a twist of fate, wound up in in the states working for a company called ISS Internet Security Systems. Then um, ran software security at Charles Schwab, and which is where I started OWASP, and and since then done a number of other things. So, yeah, that's how it how it all came, and just kind of a you know
0: serendipity, as it were, that uh, that it's all worked out great. From fluid dynamics to data, and the data is the oil, right? So there's a connection to that too.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the 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 real moment for me was I was at ISS and we were really building ISS was a company that was building vulnerability scanners and intrusion detection systems. And the light bulb went off for me in the early 2000s that I was running a services team. So my guys would, you know, break in to net to, to companies all the time, and the majority of that stuff was was basically breaking in at the application layer. Um, I used to have on my team Caleb Seema, who went on to start spy dynamics and just these amazing talented guys. And you would look at the techniques they would use to break into applications and pull hundreds of thousands of credit cards out, and none of them could be protected by the technology at the time, network security, essentially, looking at packets on the wire or you know scanning across the network. And that was when I said, great, this is, the, this is going to be the thing with this gold rush of going to the web, um, and, and went off and kind of cut my teeth learning AppSec at, at Charles
0: Schwab. So. I read your 2014 article about the start of OWASP, a true story, on the Barracode website. To me, it reads like a really good screenplay for a movie. It's mm-hmm. got its heroes, it's got its villains, it's mm-hmm. got its struggles, it's got its gray area. A lot of people listening today want to know how did OAS start? And for me, it, it apparently wasn't an easy thing. Yeah, I mean look, I you know, I haven't really been actively involved um
1: for a long, long time. And all the credit goes to all the people that, you know, have put in all the hard work over the last, you know, fifteen or so years. I was just the guy who started it and, you know, trying to drive it for the first couple of years. So you know, first up, that all, all of the credit for it should should go to those folks. Um, the, the real story was I was running software security at Charles Schwab. Um, my co part was Justin Simaney, who ran network security. Justin's uh, now the CISO of Unity and has been the CISO of SAP um, SAP and Symantec and various other places. And quite literally, on my first week there, the CIO came running down the hallway. Um, he was also English and he said, Oh, where's this new guy running AppSec? Um, we're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And we basically had a cross site scripting cross site scripting issue that had been picked up by the Wall Street Journal, and you know I kind of immediately had, you know just thrown into the deep end. And what had transpired is he said, "Look, you know I've got these people calling me trying to sell me products, and these people telling me that you should go do this and you should go do that." Um, he said, "What's the truth?" And I had nothing to point people to. I basically just had mm-hmm. marketing collateral coming in. So quite literally one weekend, um, I went home and I just spent the whole weekend writing a guide. I was joking about it with my wife the other day. I think it was quite literally a 48-hour straight stint um, without any sleep. (laughs) Um, And at the time, I was moderating a mailing list called Web AppSec, which was part of Security Focus, where BugTrack was hosted. So I had a voice. I could get it out to a couple of thousand people and published it and said, hey, I think this should get onto the Internet. and you know, we, that, that was, that was the kind of birth of it. Um, and, you know, literally we kind of took the guide, people started iterating on it. We didn't have wikis in there back in those days. So people would just iterate on a, on a document. And, um, and, and then it kind of went from, went from there. Um, bunch of, bunch of kind of early people, you know, sort of came and go and came and went. I mean, people like David Endler and, uh, you know, Steve Taylor, who's, who's at one of the big banks now, and sort of some of that Ingo Struck, who was just an amazing developer out in Germany and people that you didn't really kind of hear about now, they sort of, you know, jumped in early. Um, some of the people are still around, Gabe Lawrence, who's down at Toyota and things. Um, and just people put a lot, of, a lot of effort, a lot of time in just really trying to solve, you know, h- help create content for the right reasons. And uh, yeah, it's just a wonderful thing.
0: Now, in 2005, you did decide to step aside from OAS. Why did you do that, and what was your mindset then?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was involved in other things. It was a, you know, I had young kids, and you know, it's a, it's a large commitment. Um, and I, I kind of like starting things. You know, I've, I've had had a, you know, my second second startup now, and I generally kind of feel that that creative early stage stuff is the stuff I enjoy, and the later stage stuff of sort of operationalizing things is is just less interesting to me. Um, and so, you know, the Jeff Williams kind of came along and there were a bunch of other people that really wanted to sort of take over the the leadership and the comp you know, the organization had sort of grown to that point where, you know, it needed governance and it needed, you know, money was flowing through from conferences and, you know, people were trying to figure out how could could they sponsor it? And the core of vendors were sort of getting in trying to, you know, abuse it and and all of those sort of things. And and that just wasn't really stuff that I wanted to do. Um, the second kind of part of it was that it actually you know, kind of took a path that wasn't my original intent. Um, my original intent was to provide security content for developers. Um, you know, At the heart, I'm a, I'm a software developer and, and crypto guy. And what I wanted to be able to do was sort of build libraries and build code and build developer guidance, which I thought was going to be the real way we could make a fundamental difference. But really kind of within a couple of years, what had happened is that the community became security professionals. And so they were kind of coming at it from a different angle. Really, they were kind of people that were used to breaking software versus building secure software. Um, and I was lucky enough at the time I was I was at Microsoft and I shared an office with a guy called Ward Cunningham. Ward was the guy who created the wiki, um, if you oh, if yeah. you know that. Um, and Ward had been involved in patterns and practices in the seventies. He was one of the the gang of uh, I can't remember they really called him the gang of four, gang of five, whatever with Martin Fowler. <laughs> um, and Ward was just lovely, and we used to talk a lot about OWASP and about communities. And I would kind of share with him, you know, look, I've got these friction with these people. They want to do this. I I think I should do that. And Ward just kind of coached me. He said, "Look, the you're never going to change. You can't. You can't be bureaucratic. You can't be autocratic. You have to let the community find its own feet, even if that's not what you want to do." So it, it kind of felt like the right thing to do was just to step aside and let the community carry on. And you know, clearly, it's done amazing things. Um, but you know, it really wasn't the developer centric, code centric you know, software kind of thing that I, I, I wanted to do. Um, and so, but it's, you know, it's just an amazing, amazing org and has done a great, great service, I think, to the whole industry.
0: I know you're busy today, of course, with Open Raven. but would you ever consider starting, a, say, a new nonprofit more aligned to your original concept of being, say, developer-centric with more focused, smaller set of security objectives, kind of like that tiny food place you go to mm-hmm. where they only have a few items on the menu, but they do it really well and business is booming? Would, would you ever consider doing that again if if you ever have time again.
1: Yeah, actually, uh, absolutely. In fact, I've actually thought about, you know, r- sort of running for OWASP chair again and sort of maybe taking the mantra again. I mean, I think, you know, when I look inside of OWASP, and of course I, you know, r- have a have a, a real admiration for it, for everything it's done and achieved, but I look and I, I go to the projects page and I'm just lost. Um, and I look at a lot of projects and they're a varying quality. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a bunch of successful models in open source. If we take the Linux Foundation as an example, where I was recently helping them build a security strategy, you know, they have, you know, OS query and Kubernetes and, you know, Node.js and top high quality projects that are in there. And and I certainly think there's an opportunity to 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 do that. But you know, you have to have a different governance structure. And I think to the comment to the to the discussion just now, once the horse is bolted, it's hard to kind of bring that in. So maybe Maybe starting afresh, but um, yeah, I mean, for for sure. But right now I've got my hands full with a new startup, so (laughs) So we'll see.
0: Web security and data protection go hand in hand. And I know that your background has been both steeped in technology and education and people on the legislative side do you see a need for change to to protect consumer data similar to say california's recent uh, consumer privacy act or the eu's gdpr mm-hmm. do you see opportunities or in, in that area as well on top of the technology and training
1: yeah i mean uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough question i've spent quite a lot of time in in dc and sort of with both you know sort of federal government and the intelligence community and you know often the kind of conversation or conversations kind of lead to regulation and things. Everything from, you know, vulnerabilities being disclosed in open source code and, you know, right through to to, to products and things. And if you, if you under, you know, you, you kind of, I'm sure you've done this as well, you see behind the scenes of how products are made and how vulnerabilities are hidden by commercial companies. And you kind of think, gosh, this is, this is just wrong. People don't understand the exposure of these things. I, I was involved in auditing voting systems that were used for US election systems years ago, mm-hmm. also used for the voting of the Oscars, <laughs> when the first time they did oh. electronic voting for the Oscars. And, you know, uh, and and I think the Egyptian elections, actually, when, when the Arab Spring was going on. And you look at these types of things, and you think, "Gosh, this has a real impact on society." Yet we're basically relying on people doing the right thing, um, and so I think that there's some sort of balance that we have to get to a point where innovation can continue, so that people can iterate fast, change the world, and all that. But it has to be done in a way that we can, you know, put some sort of control on place. So you know, the kind of I think the good analogy. Is for this um, is is something like cars. You know, we've seen Tesla kind of change the cars, the the landscape with cars, with electric cars, high performance cars, you know, and all of those good things. But you know, the the motor industry is heavily regulated. You know, safety is 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 key. We're going to have a few issues kind of in the early stages, much like we've had with with autonomous vehicles. But I think there's some sort of balance, and we we definitely need to find that because right now it's the wild west.
0: Speaking of the Wild West, when you look at the landscape today, particularly for the application security landscape, whether it's web or cloud-based technologies, what do you see as our greatest threats today and basically what keeps you awake at night? Mm.
1: Well, Look, the, the, the problem that I was solving last time with SourceClear was the vulnerabilities in open source code. Um, you, you know, and that problem really isn't still fully understood. Um, so to give you an example, if you think about a supply chain, like where are you gonna attack things today? You're just gonna take it upstream because DevOps has basically enabled people with great power to put things right into the heart of companies and into software. So you know, if you go and attack upstream libraries, um, it gets pulled in blindly into downstream products um, and then there's all sorts of nuances. You can you know create a, a, a essentially a, a sanitized version to start with. and then you create a malicious update version. And everyone pulls it in you know on mass. Um, And, you know, also, if we kind of look at things like the CVE system, it's fundamentally broken. You know, virtually none of the vulnerabilities in open source code are in CVEs. Um, And even if they are, the information in CVEs is usually incorrect. And it certainly doesn't become actionable. It doesn't tell you where the vulnerable methods are in the libraries and all those things. So, you know, that is just a pervasive problem because everything that we we rely on is built on open source code. I'm sat here on my MacBook. I've got an iOS phone. You know we've got all of this stuff, and it's it's just just everywhere. And we don't, you know, shell and these other things have taught us we don't know where these libraries end up, and we can't update them in in any meaningful way. Um, and the ecosystem is you know is broken. The, if we look at things like Maven Central, you only PGP signed JAR files. Um, it's meaningless, right? I've I've actually got JAR files staged up there that look like they're from Apache Foundation because. You just take a Gmail address, you take the leader's first name and you go generate a PGP key and you call it from the Apache Foundation and people download it. Um, NPM, you know, if you want to go buy a popular NPM library with a million downloads a month, you know, you can buy it for 20,000 bucks on Silk Road or whatever the latest one of it is. And that's kind of known. So and there's there's been foreign governments that have been backdooring libraries and things. So that just is a really hard problem to solve because you know, developers are moving so fast, they, you know, security is, is friction, yet the consequences are, are pretty, pretty big. And I think still haven't, we still haven't seen, you know, we saw Equifax and other things, but we still haven't really seen the potential that could happen. So I still think that's kind of one of the the biggest, most fundamental problems. Um, the second one that's kind of coming along, I think, is that with now the mass, you know, set of JavaScript libraries and, a set of younger developers that maybe haven't gone through computer science background. Um, mm-hmm. We're starting to see the barrier to create code and the barrier to release code and release applications through app stores and deploy to the cloud is so little that you know there's a lot of really bad stuff out there, and uh, you know that's that's going to require education and and tooling that can you know help catch those things. So. Um, no shortage of problems. It's, it's just, you know, an amazing,
0: amazing industry for people to be in because it's certainly some some good career, uh, career, career stuff. It's a target rich environment. That's Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
0: So if someone starting a brand new application based company, let's say, and they have both little experience and budget for security, what advice would you give them?
1: You know, first thing is there's an amazing set of open source tools that are out there. You guys have Zap Proxy and, you know, there's, there's some, there's some great things out there. Um, many of those things work really well with with modern pipelines, you know, go pull a copy of GitLab Community Edition down and, you know, you can start firing all those things off in an automated pipeline. You can, you know, use Dependency Track, which is another one of your projects to go check the, check the dependencies. Um, ironically, I don't think there's any, been any good open source static analysis tools for a long time, but there certainly needs to be. Um, so, but there's, you know, there's a good set of tooling out there, which can at least start you know catching things in an automated way at scale and then you know then it's there's a there's a lot of talented people that are open to help such as you you guys and you know all of that stuff and i think if if people start reaching out for help there's you know you'd be surprised at people on the internet how willing they are and to invest their time and just help you for the right thing
0: we have a lot of folks interested in getting into application security your life story has been quite remarkable with no end in sight what advice would you give them today gosh um you know, my, I think my answer to that would be, you know, don't be shy. Think about,
1: you know, what the problem that you want to figure out how to go solve is and how you want to go solve it. Oh, really started with, you know, an idea, a, a weekend's worth of hard work, $20 hosting account, and it's enabled me to go. I've traveled the world, you know, talking at various chapters and, you know, talking to, to some incredible senior people in industry and senators and, you know, all, all sorts of, um, of people about the, about the problem. So you can really have a big impact with, with very little. You know, I think the other thing is, you know, ask ask people to to get involved. There's a lot of like-minded people that are out there and you just got to find them. But the beauty of today's social networks and things is that you can go find them very easily. So, you know, don't be afraid. You don't need, it's not a resource problem anymore, right? It's uh, all, all of the, the internet is just this amazing thing that both enables you to go find information, generate information, find people and, you know, make a difference.
0: I think you just created a quote there, security, don't be shy. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Uh, Do you have any upcoming events or things to promote or plug? Uh, No. We've just released a Security Voices podcast this
1: morning with the Open Raven crew who are always fascinating. You know, Mike Andrews, who heads up engineering is. He's a great guy. He ran security at Bing, and then built Cortana, the the uh, voice, the the equivalent of Siri at Microsoft. And Mike's always always great. So so that's that's well worth listening to. And then you know keep a keep a keep a, keep a track on Open Raven. It's open source core, and you know we're looking forward to people extending the platform.
0: Mark Murphy, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been an honor.
1: Oh, absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Portland, Oregon chapter of the Open Web Application Security Project, OWASP. Check us out online and see how we're making the web a more secure place. Music is by Tomo and Animoy. And my name is John Whiteman. Thanks for listening.